Hello and welcome to Coast to Coast AM's official YouTube channel and the premiere screening of Beyond Belief with George Nord. The following episode is brought to you by Gaia and beyondbelief.com. Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. I'm George Norian. What a program we have in store for you. A special person who I have admired for years. His name's Billy Carson. And Billy, of course, has appeared on other Gaia programs. You've seen him before, talking about some incredible things about ancient civilizations, ancient technology, and things that have been going on. Billy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. And your new book, which is just out, is called what? Compendium of the Emerald Tablets. That's fantastic. Yeah. How did, now, how did you research things like this? Well, you know, I started looking into the Sumerian tablets when I started looking at some of the images from Mars uh, and other, solar, other uh, planets in our solar yeah. system by NASA and the European Space Agency. And I started thinking, these look like remnants of an ancient civilization. So when I started going on Google, I started noticing that there were uh, tablets out there that talked about these types of ancient civilizations. So that's kind of how I really got into learning about Zachariah Stitchin and some of the other ancient books uh, that are, have been written about these ancient tablets. So then I went directly to the source and started looking at the tablets myself to see what they said. I wanted my own understanding of them. As you were looking at these, let's say online, mm -hmm. did it just pop right out at you? Well, no. Uh, thankfully to the U UCLA, they have an online library called the UCLA CDLI uh, cuneiform library. Okay. And it allows you to take stone tablets off the virtual shelf and drop them into a translator. Really? And read them for yourself. Technology at its best. Absolutely. Would civilizations be in shock today knowing everything you know about past civilizations? I think there would be an initial shock factor, uh, but I believe that because we're very resilient people, I believe that people would initially be in shock and then eventually come into understanding that this is what really happened, especially if they can really grasp, understand it, and verify a lot of the information for themselves which is why I try to put a lot of content out there so that I can create more researchers of people looking into this on their own so they can come up with their own conclusions and then they begin to feel more comfortable about the truth about the ancient past. And Billy, what have you concluded? Have you concluded that past civilizations were just very high in technology, maybe were much older than people think, or that we had visitations from extraterrestrials and they kind of contributed to us. I think it's a combination of both, George. I believe that, uh, that we, we did have some visitations uh, in the ancient past. I'm talking about deep antiquity that did genetically modify some of the existing hominids on mm -hmm. this planet. Uh, but I also even believe that further back before that initial visitation by the Anunnaki beings, that we may have already risen to a high level, a level of civilization with prior uh, people on this planet that could be our initial progenitors or our, our cousins, uh, so to speak. Uh, and then those civilizations have risen and fallen, kind of like what the Mayans talk about, that, that there have been four worlds and we're living in the fifth. Uh, each civilization, according to some of the Indian Vedas, seems to rise and then reach a certain level and then fall again. And I think the Anunnaki came during a time where we, were at, we had already fallen, and it kind of re-kick-started our civilization by you know, genetically modifying us and also adding some additional technology to, um, to this planet. Billy, recently scientists have just discovered a 10,000-year-old series of sketches and etchings on rock in India, mm -hmm. yeah. which depict UFOs and extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. You can tell them as looking at these like alien grays mm -hmm. with the big heads and the yeah. big eyes, 
and little saucers in the background, flying saucers. Mm -hmm. Who would make that up 10,000 years ago unless they actually saw it? You know, that's a good point you bring up. I think people need to understand that in those ancient times when people were just starting to do writing and art, they didn't have time to do things for fun. Uh, at that, you know, back then, everything was micromanaged. Everything had a purpose. And even the cuneiform tablets, the writing on these tablets, everything is done with a specific purpose and intent. And I don't think that people were just sitting around going, you know, let me draw some of these funny-shaped UFOs and some great aliens. I mean, they really d drew what they've seen and what they've learned. And I do believe that uh, when you see these ancient depictions of craft and aliens and so forth, like the one there's one in Australia also, right. this partially uncovered uh, Egyptian temple in Karyong 9 in Australia that has uh, a mothership UFO with little tiny UFOs coming out Truly of it. Truly amazing. And it's an incredible thing, all in hieroglyphs. And I mean, when you see these things, you have to say to yourself, what, why would somebody take the time to make this up in ancient times? I think back then it, everything was so crucial, just surviving was crucial to make things like this up didn't seem realistic. I think they really drew what they saw. Billy, what is the Enuma Elish? The Enuma Elish are seven tablets uh, of cuneiform writing that were uh, date back over 7,000 years, uh, and they're located at the British Museum. These cuneiform tablets actually talk about the creation of our solar system as we know it right now, including how Earth was created and how we, uh, how we acquired our moon. It's an amazing story, and it kind of it's hard to understand for the average person who starts reading it because it almost sounds like it's people battling in, in the sky. But when you really break it down and understand it's, uh, it's the epic of the creation of our solar system itself. That's amazing. It's almost biblical, isn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, the Bible copied a lot of the content from the Enumulation to Genesis. At the British Museum, there's a fellow called Irving Finkel, yeah. and he talks a little about this. Mm -hmm. Because the Cyrus cylinder that was meant for a Babylonian audience, it was written in the Babylonian language, which is a Semitic tongue related to the modern languages of Hebrew and Arabic and Aramaic. The writing system which Cyrus's officials used was the traditional cuneiform script, which had been invented in ancient Iraq well before 3000 BC. It is written by pressing a stylus something a bit like a chopstick, into the surface of the clay which is nearly dry, and the signs which convey the sound of the language consist of different arrangements of these strokes. They're written one by one, and the reader has to join them up, and the sound emerges from the clay. Billy, how in the world do they interpret that? It's so amazing. I mean, really, really is. you know, the, the thing that's so beautiful about it is at the time, many people were copying the Sumerian language over into their own languages. So we had kind of a key to understand what the Sumerian text was saying. Luckily, because many people, the, the Sumerians almost seemed to have branched out and kickstarted so many civilizations outside of sure. themselves. And because of that, everybody translating uh, you know, from the Sumerian into their own languages gave us a key to understand what those uh, cuneiform texts were saying. Has Zechariah Sitchin, the late Zechariah mm -hmm. Sitchin, who wrote his books called The Twelfth Planet, yeah. has he investigated those? Absolutely. Uniforms? He has investigated the seven tablets of creation and uh, the Enuma Elish, and he has written about them and added them into his books, almost virtually word for word. And I, I'm glad you bring up Sitchin because so many people had tried to put him down at the end of his career. Yes. But in my personal opinion, he was one of the greatest researchers in the history of this planet. And his work, uh, to me, is, was second to none. Now that I've looked into other authors have that have translated these texts, and I myself have now gone and translated these texts, especially the Enuma Elish, I come to the understanding 
that all of the stories are fundamentally the same with a couple of different things here and there. And what is that conclusion? Tell us what you think happened many years ago. The conclusion that I personally have come to is that there were beings, advanced beings that are, that are our progenitors that came to this planet in ancient times to strip mine this planet for resources, but not only Earth, the moon, Mars, and a couple of other moons uh, of Jupiter uh, as well. And they came to get these resources, and during that time frame, uh, they lived here and, and mined this planet themselves for about 250,000 years. And then at, the, at one point, the working class became very agitated from the workload and decided that they were going to revolt against the leaders, which were Enki and Enlil. And at that time, a decision was made to create a slave worker, uh, which would be, you know, what we are, homo mm -hmm. sapien, from an existing hominid. They didn't literally create a human being from dust. But they took something was already on the planet. Something was already on the planet, and they took that that something, that hominid, and they took uh, uh, an egg out of one, cleaned up the genetic material, put the Anunnaki genet genetic material inside of it, embedded it into the womb of one of the Anunnaki uh, women, and she took it to full term, and gave birth ten months later to the Adamu or the first man. Sounds like Adam and Eve. Absolutely. <laughs> so a lot of this correlates with the Bible as well, doesn't it? It does. I mean, literally, the Bible and the Torah almost took a lot of these ver uh, verses out of the uh, Sumerian tablets, almost word for word. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Now, let's, let's go back to Sitchin's work a little bit, if mm -hmm. we can, Billy. Sure. And tell us about the Anunnaki. That is the name given mm -hmm. to a race of beings from another planet, right? Yeah. Nibiru was Correct. the planet they call? Yeah, Nibiru was the planet. Now, depending on who was translated or who, who have looked at the tablets, they could be from Sirius, they could be Nomo from Sirius, they could be from this planet called Nibiru. They, some people think they may be from the Orion. Mm -hmm. However, either way you look at it, they, it, everybody comes to the same conclusion that beings that, look, that we look like them came here uh, to this planet and Sitchin came up with the same conclusion. Primarily, I think he came up with that conclusion from these tablets because these tablets actually mention Nibiru. They mention Marduk. Uh, they mention who was the son of, um, of, of Enki uh, and who basically is, is now the current ruler, supposedly, of this realm uh, until the next age of Aquarius really comes in in 2025. And it also mentions Enlil and many other people. Uh, so, and it talks about the planet of the crossing. It talks about genetic manipulation of, of the existing hominid on this planet. It talks about all of that in these seven tablets. So his story is fundamentally based on something that had already been established and written about since the 1800s. It wasn't something he, that he made up. Now, this person that you have mentioned several times, mm -hmm. Enki, yeah. who was he? Enki was a son of Anu. Anu was the main king or the main leaders. That's where we get who Anunnaki. Who came here. Who came here. Okay, he came here a little bit after his sons arrived. They call them the heroes of right, old. The sons got here first. Right, Enki and Enlil. Now, Enki, his actual name, actual name is Ea Enki. So Ea, the first two letters, Ah, and Ki was Earth. So he became the ruler or the, the, the king of Earth, even though his brother Enlil ran everything. Okay. He should have been, he had a higher rank than Enlil, but something happened, which it's not clear exactly how it happened, but his brother Enlil uh, superseded him at some point and became, you know, gained complete control of the planet even though the planet was named after Ea Enki. And they had the ability to breathe our atmosphere, our air, and everything else? Absolutely. They come from a planet that's most likely very similar makeup to Earth. Okay. Uh, so we could live on that planet. We could live on that planet, exactly. And at first I thought that might have been outlandish until I started researching Mercury, which is a planet in our solar system very close to the sun. But now they've discovered that Mercury rotates very slow on its axis, has, contains billions of tons of water, and also has um, genetic, uh, sorry, uh, uh, biological material on it. 
and this comes from the, the, the Mercury Messenger mission that just came back, you know, last year. So now you look at the gases at Mercury and you start to realize it's got more oxygen than Earth. Sure. And it's got all yeah. the other gases needed for us to actually breathe on Mercury. So imagine if we can land on Mercury, you could probably pop our cap and take a, take a deep breath. If it just wasn't so close to the sun, right? Exactly. Well, the thing about it is because it's rotating so slow on its axis, uh, it actually has a lot of areas closer to the poles that are very habitable now, NASA says. And so, so now they're planning missions there because there's areas where, like I said, billions of tons of organic material and, and ice water and even some liquid water on the planet's surface because it can't, it, it's, um, it's located in a region where it's, it's, it's sustainable. So it's very interesting. So when I saw that, I said, you know what? It's possible now in my mind for mm -hmm. another being to come here from a planet that could have very similar gases. Maybe they have a little bit more krypton and carbon or maybe have a little bit more oxygen or less oxygen, but overall they were able to sustain and breathe here. And we already have the instruments here on this planet mm -hmm. to decipher what kind of elements are on other planets yeah. a long, long way mm -hmm. away. And we're able to say that they may have this atmosphere, yes. they may have this, they might have water. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the Anunnaki had more sophisticated equipment. Mm -hmm. They were able to pinpoint planet Earth immediately yep. and say this planet has everything we need to do what we need to do. Absolutely, they call them the Tablets of Destiny. And on this Tablet of Destiny, they had these, they call them crystal screens. Well, kind of like, in my, my mind, I think like an iPad in a way. Right. But on this screen, they would, uh, the first person, Alalu, scanned the Earth and saw that based on the light, the information from the light of the planet, you can get information like spectrometry. You can get the oxygen levels, everything you just said. You can get what's in the atmosphere and everything else, the temperatures. Um, and also, they found the gold as well before they even arrived here. So uh, you're right, the technology will allow somebody to scan a planet, and now we can scan planets 30, 40, 50 million light years away and analyze the light coming from that planet and break it down and tell you exactly what chemicals exist there. Does any of this negate Genesis or the Bible, or does it augment it? It actually augments it. It gives it a much bigger view. In other words, the Bible, uh, the Quran, the Torah, all of these books, they mention Marduk and all these people, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. However, in a very short, small version of the story, if you look at the Epic of Atreasis and the Seven Types of Creation, you get the big story. You get a much bigger uh, epic versus what the Bible has taken small parts of it, somebody over time, many, many hundreds of years after the people that they're talking about, sometimes even thousands of years, are already gone and passed away. I think a lot of people confuse the Bible with being written in real time as events happen. But in true reality, the Bible was written hundreds of years after events happened. So you're looking at something that's basically just copied information from much more ancient texts and slightly modified with a lot of over 8,000 bad translations just in the modern right. King James ver version But it alone. does not negate the existence of a God, does it? It doesn't negate the existence of a God. I think people get that confused a lot. They think if you talk about Anunnaki and beings coming here and everything else, that you're trying to say God doesn't exist. I personally believe that God does exist, in my opinion, just because of quantum physics. Right. Because quantum physics proves that there is a creator of this realm. Everything has a specific design, and mathematically you can calculate it. So I believe that there is a creator. But what happens is in the Bible, I don't believe that the people talking in the Bible that are saying that they are God, is, I don't believe that's the creator of the universe itself. I think those are Anunnaki or advanced beings masquerading as a God but they're not the actual creator of the universe itself. And of course, the origins of the universe is a topic that really comes up for a lot of discussion. Yeah. I mean, it's something that <laughs> I even bat my head against the wall trying to <laughs> yeah. figure out 
How did this happen? It's really an incredible thing uh, that when you look at the history of the universe itself, you get the Big Bang, the most popular theory that's out there. What I've discovered in my personal research is that the universe may be holographic by nature. In other words, we may be living in an ancestor simulation, meaning that- Created by? Creating by an ancestor a civilization, another civilization above us, and there may be many layers to reality. We may be one of trillions or maybe even an infinite number of simulations, and we ourselves have already started making these simulations. And what people tend to think when they hear the term holographic universe is, that, oh, you're trying to say that we're not real. But it doesn't mean that. It means that we're real, but we're living in a fully immersed light matrix. It's already been scientifically proven that everything in this entire universe is made of light. Even the light you can't, mm -hmm. you know, you can't see, dark matter, dark energy, even that's light. Everything is light. Atoms are mostly empty space. And so what we're basically starting to find out now scientifically is that everything that we consider to be uh, solidity is actually an illusion. Everything that we think is matter is an illusion. The only thing that truly exists in the third dimension is consciousness. That's the only real thing. And that might even be broadcast in here from a source, from a singularity somewhere. And consciousness has kind of di like divided itself into trillions of entities so that it can experience the third dimension subjectively. But overall, the actual creator of this realm, which quantum physics proves is a creator because of the mathematics behind everything, the Fibonacci sequence, pi, phi, all of that, we start to look and think we may be in living in a simulation. And to add more credence to that, when you look at the video game called The Sims, which right. we have created, right. it's, there's people in there, they have families, they have lives, they have jobs to go to, they have dogs and pets and vacations and everything else. And now scientists are saying that within the next eight to 10 years, The Sims may be conscious because of this AI technology. So now if they're conscious, we have now ourselves created our own simulated universe. Could somebody quickly wipe us out, merely erase us by hitting a key on a, on a, in, on a, on a board? It's very possible. Maybe that could be one of the reasons why we always seem to reach a certain level and start over. I mean, who knows? You know, it's very hard to Whoa. say. It's very, very hard to say. But I know that um, James Gates Jr. at the University of Maryland uh, is a uh, quantum physicist and also a theoretical physicist. He discovered that the fabric of space-time itself, he was actually interviewed by Neil Tyson deGrasse in a show one time, uh, do, uh, I think it was actually a live stage show where they were doing a talk, and he actually stated this on the stage, that the fabric of space-time itself runs off of something called these Adinkra codes, and these Adinkra codes are the same exact codes that run search engine browsers and websites. Interesting. So the fabric of space-time is a code that we are already using now to create programs on a computer screen. It is, it is baffling to be sure that the existence of you, the existence of me, might be predicated mm -hmm. on some other civilization that has created it, yeah. simply created it. Uh, I can't get it yet. I just don't <laughs> understand the Big Bang Theory, yeah. how something would start from nothing. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll get those answers one day. Maybe one day. It's yeah, not easy. Going back to the Anunnaki, mm -hmm. Billy, and what they wanted, they came here, as you said, to mine gold. Yes. Zechariah Sitchin has always said they needed to sprinkle gold particles in their atmosphere mm -hmm. almost to shield their planet right. from the sun. They're in our solar system. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Well, you know, gold is a very, very technological uh, item uh, or, or element. And I think that a lot of people... Uh, who are into gold and gold jewelry and everything else, they've been, they don't realize that they've been fooled into thinking gold has a, a value for decoration and, and, and monetary means. Mm -hmm. Actually, what happened was, in ancient times, uh, gold was used, it was mined by the Anunnaki before humans even got involved. 
to, to create this substance, this powdered dust that they can actually hoist into their atmosphere. Powdered gold. Powdered gold. And to add credence to that, my vehicle that I actually drive doesn't have any window tint. It's a higher-end car, and the glass in my vehicle has powdered uh, gold in the windows to reflect UV light to keep the interior of the car Isn't cool. that what the astronauts used as a shield Absolutely. when they went to the moon? So you see, gold is very technological, and you need it for uh, you know, radiation-hardened uh, computer circuit boards. You need it, you need it for uh, satellites. Uh, it, the, the thing about gold is you, can, you get no loss of electricity no matter how long the distance. It's a yeah. great uh, you know, electrical uh, conductor, conductor. Yeah. Uh, and you don't lose anything in friction. So, and you can meld it. It's very malleable. You can mold it to almost any shape. So it's a very, very interesting thing. And because much later when they had the revolt and decided that they wanted to have uh, slaves help them do this work, which they've now, Michael Tellinger has broadcast actually on one of the shows on Gaia, uh, Hidden Origins, they show that they discovered the location of the very first gold mines that humans worked at at Enlil's house on the hill. And Jeez. it's still there over 100,000 years ago. It's still there right how, now. How deep are these mines? Oh, they go pretty deep, uh, you know, and they've, they've brought out of these mines different things going down many layers, you know, little, little uh, discoveries of pottery and, and so forth. I wonder how much gold they extracted from our Probably planet. a lot, and there's so much more. It almost, there's so much gold and oil on this planet, it almost makes you start to think that the planet itself is producing it. Well, I believe that. Yeah. With, with oil, the abiotic oil theory, right. That this planet is, you know, creating it when it exactly, was formed. Exactly, exactly. I don't think we'll ever reach peak oil. I think that's an illusion. I believe the oil I is agree. the blood of the Earth itself. I agree. And gold may very well be another element that's being created by the Earth itself as well, because it almost seems like with the amount of gold that was taken out of this Earth already, and there's still so much more, where is all this gold coming from? It's amazing. Are we ever going to really get these answers? I mean, we've got researchers like yeah. you, mm -hmm. the late Zechariah Sitchin, right. Michael Tellinger, mm -hmm and Jason Martell and people yeah. who have investigated this. But is mainstream science, Billy, ever going to come up and say exactly what you've just told us today? It won't happen until we get to the point where there's a real revolution of consciousness on this planet. And what I mean by that, where there's enough people that have finally woken up that want to do enough research and enough digging, and it may be 100 years, maybe 200, it may be 300 years from now, but there's going to come a point in time where enough people in other words, even the people that are working in these science universities and so forth are going to come, they're going to be conscious and they're going to say, you know what, it's time to put the information out there, time to tell the people the truth. And maybe at some point long in the future, we'll get enough information for people to realize that there was a very, very incredible past on in human history. I am fascinated by our own solar system and mm -hmm. the planetary systems, how Earth was formed, how the moon was formed. Mm -hmm. These objects that are in our solar system are truly remarkable. Yeah. What do you think happened to form all of this? Well, according to the Enuma Elish, uh, there's this huge battle between the gods. And the, the gods in the Enuma Elish in the, in the beginning of the epic are actually planetary bodies and spatial bodies, even asteroids and moons. Okay. Uh, so it's kind of an esoteric way to You have to, to understand the parables yes. behind this. Exactly, exactly. And one of the planets in this uh, epic is called Nibiru. This is where the, the name Nibiru actually that, comes from. This is that tenth planet. This is exactly. And it comes through the solar system. But there's another planet in our solar system that's about four to six times the size of Earth. And it's actually called Tiamat. And it's just outside of the orbit of Pluto. Actually, I'm, I'm sorry, just outside the orbit of Mars. I'm sorry. Is that what collided with Earth a long time ago? Okay, here's what happened. Nibiru, or later in the epic, a more recent version, they call it Marduk because Marduk wanted to be the one that 
Marduk is Nibiru? No, yeah, exactly. Marduk is Nibiru. All he right. also wanted credit. When he ruled, he wanted credit for it. So he changed it in the newer They version. had egos then yeah, too, huh? Big egos. <laughs> big egos. He changed, it, he changed Nibiru to Marduk. But anyway, the, he crashed into Tiamat and split Tiamat apart. A huge chunk of that, along with the water and organic material, swept into the location we are now and became Earth. Uh-huh. Gravitationally, we pulled Kingu, which is the, one of the moons of Tiamat, with us. Which is our moon. Which is our moon now. So we pulled the moon along, but the moon was never a result of an impact with Earth huh. from another object. The moon is a result that it was already there with another, another planet named Tiamat. The rest of Tiamat crumbled up into huge chunks and became the hammered bracelet, which is talked about in the Bible, the Sumerian tablets, and also we know it as the asteroid belt. So that became the asteroid belt. The asteroid belt is actually an exploded planet. I believe that. Yeah. And I now Mars, that. according to uh, some of the other study and research, could have been a moon of this Tiamat, which then gained its own orbit uh, around the sun, which could explain why it has a very strange orbit. Uh, at certain points, it's 100, 140 million miles away from Earth, and at other points when it's in perigee, it's only 40 million miles away. It's got a very strange orbit around our sun, but it almost looked like it was thrown into that orbit after the explosion of Tiamat. There are a lot of strange moons around some of the planets. Mm -hmm. You know, Europa, yeah. for example, around right. Jupiter. Mm -hmm. There's another one called Iapetus yes. around Saturn. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mike Berra, when he appeared on one of the Gaia programs, Deep Space, talked about that. Researchers point out that a very odd moon orbits Saturn. Some believe this moon could be an artificial planet. Iapetus is very different because unlike most of the moons of Saturn, which are in its a, a kind of ecliptic plane, it's off at about a 60 degree angle. When pictures of the horizon came back that were showing the surface of Iapetus, not only was there this bizarre rim around the middle of the object, there was this edge, 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 straight line, straight line, straight line. It was not a rounded spherical horizon. And actually, if you do the calculations and you see how long these straight lines are and put them together. Hi, this is Billy Carson, and I want to take a minute to talk to you about my Egyptian mystery school that I teach at Dame Dash Studios in Burbank, California. The first mystery school was an absolute success, and we're looking forward to the second mystery school, December 7th and 8th, 2019. We will also be hosting a mystery school every month and a half. So you can check on ForbiddenKnowledge.com with the number 4, ForbiddenKnowledge.com, or check out my Instagram account for updates. The link tree is in my bio to go to the mystery school, and you can register for classes there. Together, it comes out in the shape of something called a dodecahedron. Iapetus appears to be an artificial satellite. It could very well have been the base from which the progenitors, call them the preservers, call them whatever you want to call them, operated. They actually operated on this moon of Saturn and did different things to different planets in the solar system. All right, Billy, I'll give it to Mike Barra that it's a very unusual moon, yeah. but an artificial moon? Is that a stretch? I don't think it's a stretch. I mean, from my understanding, the Anunnaki seem to be about at least one million years ahead of us. And I base that on the fact that they Which came... Which is nothing in it's, time. It's nothing. It's a blink of an eye in geological time no. spans. I mean, literally a blink of an eye. And they came here 450,000 years ago to mine this planet for resources and also other planets and moons in our solar system for resources, uh, especially Mars, uh, which is one of the reasons that caused the revolt because of the labor they were mm -hmm. doing on Mars. But um, they had the technology back then. Uh, and even in the Enuma Elish, it talks about them coming here uh, with technology and with ships and everything else. So... I really believe that um, the, the ability to create an artificial moon was not beyond their reach and that the, they were part of the Atlantean 
civilization. And the reason why I think that is because the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, Thoth is actually the son of Enki, and Enki is the son of Anu, so this is all Anunnaki based. He calls himself the Sons of Atlantis, or his, him and his crew, the Sons of Atlantis. Yeah. His, ta his tablets were written by him over 36,000 years ago. And in those tablets, he claimed to have built the Great Pyramid with all the magic science or advanced technology in it, in the Emerald Tablet. But the reason why this is important is because in the opening scene of the Emerald Tablet, he flies from one location. His dad tells him to take, take the crew to another location, the land of Kim, which is ancient Egypt, land there. He lands, when he opens the doors to his ship, the people come running at him with, with hammers and, and, you know, and everything to beat him up. The and humans of the time? Humans of the time. This is after the Great Flood, because he mentions that the Great Flood, the waters had just subsided. Right. subsided. Right. He raises his staff and he sends out a ray of vibration, freezing these humans in their tracks. So here we have a ship that takes off, flies over to a location, lands, they open a the door, and he picks up this staff and he jolts the people with some type of electronic ray. And 36,000 years ago, yeah. where he also talks about building the Great Pyramid and building the Sphinx. So you see the technology that, that we're talking here is phenomenal for back then. So you can only imagine what they had the capability of doing uh, you know, in ancient times. Well, but who would have created a false moon like Iapetus? Who, how would that have happened? Well, you're talking about something, an object that's being built in space. So it actually makes it very easy to do. All you need to have is the technology to sustain yourself in space. You need to have the architecture, the architectural, you know, know-how to it's do huge. it. It's huge. It's huge. It's massive. But these Anunnaki, when you look on the earth, look at the stones at Baalbek. Look at the, um, a lot of the megalithic structures around this planet. We have super massive stone structures on this planet that we still can't figure out how we're, we're done today. So it only makes sense to me that they would be able to build megalithic structures in space, especially with zero gravity. It's the ridge around Iapetus that has a lot of people baffled, isn't it? Yeah, it's it? about a three-mile-high ridge around the equator of Iapetus, which, okay, it's perfect there. I mean, it looks like a seam where two, a top and a bottom were put we're, together. We're put together. I was just <laughs> yeah. going to say that, almost like a, well, a little right. top or something exactly. like that that you spin. So you start to think, where did George Lucas get the idea for the Death Star? Mm -hmm. Was it Iapetus? Because it really seems like it's very similar to, to Iapetus. Might it be a spaceship? It could be a spaceship. I mean, you know, city? When, when you want to travel around the solar system or maybe even between different solar systems, you, maybe you create a, a massive uh, kind of a planetary spaceship that allows you to have everything you need to sustain the lives of millions of people while you travel. Billy, I've had a number of guests on Beyond Belief and also on the radio program Coast to Coast AM that have talked about this extra planet in mm -hmm. the universe, in the solar system, mm -hmm. called Planet X. Yeah. If it's a planet, if it's out there, mm -hmm. call it Nibiru, why haven't astronomers told us about it? They actually have. Uh, just recently uh, on Fox News, an astronomer came on there and he described not only that they've discovered it, but they've named it. Oh, NASA calls it Planet Nine. This astronomer says they've called it Biden. They've nicknamed it Biden. After but, Joe Biden? Yeah, <laughs> which is bizarre. Maybe he funded some of the research. I don't Maybe, know. I don't know. It's, it's very possible. Yeah. But they even showed it on the little blip on the, uh, on the uh, little show that they put up, uh, and they've said it's extremely far beyond the orbit of Pluto, but it's orbiting its own star. It's got a brown dwarf star that it orbits. So we're talking about a In our solar system. In our solar system, there's another solar system. He actually says it openly on TV. So we live in a binary solar system, and according to this ast astronomer, it orbits our sun every 4,200 years, and it's got its own little planetary solar system going around it. 
That's he, where the Anunnaki are. Well, right? he says that's what the astronomer said, which blew me away. That's where we came from. I almost had to play it back. To, matter of fact, I looped it on my video channel because I wanted to hear it over and over again. He said, we're looking at where we came from. So this planet, we'll call it Nibiru, inhabited with the Anunnaki, are they still there, in your opinion, on that planet? Uh, that's a good question. They may have already left and, and expanded and spread out more. They were already, in my opinion, a species that had already spread out from maybe the Pleiades. And the reason why I get that is because a lot of the ancient artifacts that I've looked at now, going around the world to different places and seeing some of the artifacts in museums, they usually depict the Pleiadian star cluster and the Orion, and sometimes Sirius. So I'm really starting to think that they are an intergalactic species. Uh, and even in one of the epics, uh, one of the Anunnaki gods takes on a wife from another planet. So, I mean, this is some real Star Wars-type stuff here. I really think that they're, really is. they're everywhere, man. I believe they may still be living in our solar system. Now we have a new area of the solar system called the Inner Oort Cloud, where there are all kind of rogue planets and things out there that shouldn't exist, that we didn't think could possibly exist. And I think that uh, it's important for people to understand. A lot of people are saying, is it going to come back and crash into our Earth? I don't think that this object is going to crash into the Earth. But what I think is happening is it's dislodging um, debris from the Oort cloud and sending it streaming toward the inner solar system, which is probably why Obama signed the executive order a few mm -hmm. years ago uh, to have a mission to a comet to try to learn how to shift its orbit. Because we have to learn how to avert, uh, of course, annihilation from some of these objects. And there's a lot of them out there, a lot coming toward the inner, Earth, uh, inner orbits. Billy, let's take the religious aspects out of this totally for mm -hmm. a moment, because there are a lot of people who think that we are it in the universe yeah. based on religion. Mm -hmm. Let's take that out. Yeah. Isn't it very logical to assume that the elements that have created Earth and Mars mm -hmm. and our sun are the same throughout the entire universe, and that the complexity of life, which started here on this planet, probably started on billions of other planets. Without a doubt. I mean, you just look at the Drake equation and you see that there's potential for trillions and trillions of civilizations out there in our universe. Uh, everything that we are, that we consider to be matter or real, originates about 13.5 billion years ago from something the size of a small green pea, as Greg Braden famously said one time. And in that case, we're all part of that same original source material and all of the elements that make me, you, this chair, the studio, everything else are all part of that same thing. So the, the odds that we're the only people here are almost second to none. I believe that there's probably trillions and trillions of entities out there in our, in our universe all made up from the same uh, material. Now, why do they say that this extra planet, planet X, mm -hmm. that comes around every 3,600 years based on Sitchin's theories, mm -hmm. plays a havoc with the planet? may have contributed to the Great Flood, mm -hmm. may have contributed to other disasters on this planet. Why did they say that? Because similar to Mars, where Mars has a very strange orbit, where it orbits closer to the sun and then further away at times, this object kind of does the same thing. As it comes towards the orbit of our sun, it, it, it comes in pretty close and creates a breakaway speed. Now, not close enough to interact directly uh, with our inner solar system planets uh, where it's going to crash into anything. Not anymore, I don't believe. But I believe that because of the gravity of the brown dwarf star that it orbits, has a, ha, it has a direct effect on or having creating earthquakes, different types of storm patterns, melting our ice caps. And I think that's where a lot of the global warming in our entire solar system is coming from. A lot of people don't realize Earth is not the only planet experiencing global warming right now. 
all of the moons and planets in our solar system, even Pluto is experiencing global warming. Right. Where's that warmth coming from? Exactly. Gravitational waves coming and passing over the They don't have power plants and cars over no, there, that's for think, sure. Yeah, I don't think so. So it's the gravity. It's the gravitational waves potentially from this object that's out there that's supermassive passing over our solar system, and these waves, as, they, as, it, as it gets a little bit closer, they get stronger. Now, these waves are waves of energy and frequency, and they're going to create warmth and heat and friction, and that friction is going to, in turn, create stronger storms, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, mudslides, all of these things you're going to see. As a matter of fact, the core of Saturn is almost melting, and one of the scientists came on, this is hmm. a few years ago, and said, if that was Earth, we'd be, we'd be extinct already. We'd be cooked. Exactly. Literally. And so Lots of controversy lately, Billy, about other objects that are being discovered through mm -hmm. our solar system, uh, coming from our galaxy, perhaps, who knows? Weird-shaped objects, mm -hmm. cigar-shaped, and things like that. Yeah. Are they natural, or do you think there's something strange here? I think that we're looking at a lot of remnants coming through our solar system from an ancient galactic uh, war. Even really? Though, yeah, I really do. If you look at ancient, ancient times, you discover the Enuma Elish and you discover the creation. But after that, much later, there's a lot of remnants of what I would consider a battle uh, in our solar system. When you look at the, the moons of Mars uh, and you look and you see how um, they look like they have weapons fire on them, when you look at like the, they were blasted like they away, were blasted away, or shot out, you know, kind of like in a in a gun pattern from almost space. In a way. From space, exactly. Uh, when you look at our moon and you look at the way that it's cratered, the craters, uh, you know, don't seem to be just from asteroid impacts because typically you have a trail when an asteroid hits it, and then you leave a trail behind, and those trails kind of would stay there. These look like kind of blasts on the surface of the moon to me. I don't see a lot of ejecta at the edge of the rims of some of these craters which to me either they can be artificial or they can be uh, old ancient blasts. I mean, it's just very strange what we have here. And then you also have a lot of anomalies on a lot of these planets, which you can download these images from NASA and the European Space Agency, where you see these anomalies on the moon, on Mars, on, on uh, Mercury, on Venus. And you start to say, wow, what are these things doing here? And then when you look at the ancient text, all of a sudden you start to hear about these wars, these pyramid wars and these wars between the gods, uh, and now you go, okay, maybe this is a remnant. These are remnants of an ancient war that happened in our solar system. And maybe after all the debris started traveling around and crashing into other planets and forth, so forth, maybe a lot of people got out of here for a while to let things calm back down. Well, there is evidence on this planet alone that there was an ancient nuclear explosion. Absolutely. Of some type. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was some kind of an asteroid that hit us or what. But Robert Oppenheimer, the founder of our atomic program, truly believes mm -hmm. that they had... Uh, nuclear weapons then. Yes, yes. He made a famous quote from the Mahabharata. Uh, it says, I, now I am death, destroyer of worlds, uh, right when they were doing the nuclear test, yep. Oppenheimer. But the evidence in the Indus Valley in Mohenjo-Daro, uh, where the buildings are still there, vitrified from the blast, and dead bodies are still laying in the street holding hands. So you have the evidence here of the nuclear blast. When I went to Egypt in May of um, 2014, and the sands of Giza, I was putting my hand in the sand and just bringing up all the dirt and picking up balls of glass at Giza. Well, how, what can and, turn... And what, what can turn <laughs> sand into glass but a massive explosion? Exactly, exactly. And those balls of glass is what they would create these scarab beetles out of and consider them to be sacred. What does that tell you? Again, peace of worship, pe people worshiping creations of the God, a war of the gods. Uh, so the evidence is all around us. Billy, it's truly remarkable what may have happened on this planet a long time ago. Things that 
experts like you try to explain to us. They don't explain this in school. When I was in school, they didn't get into this. Why not? To me, this would have kept me on the edge of my chair listening to a professor or a teacher Mm -hmm. talking about things like that, that there's another planet in the solar system. It comes around every 3,600 years. Mm -hmm. It has calamities and plays havoc with Earth. Mm -hmm. Why don't they tell us about this? I think the reason why it goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel incident, which is in the Bible, but also further back in the Sumerian tablets, where the people came together to build this tower, in my opinion, was probably a spaceport that they were trying to build to mimic the Anunnaki or maybe even build a real spaceport if they had had enough technology to go into space. When Enki and Enlil came back from wherever they were, they obviously had been away for a while, they saw this tower being built and Enlil was enraged because he felt right away that the people were able to reach a high level of, of civilization, a high level of technology, and maybe even outdo them. So in his disgust, he destroyed the Tower of Babel as well as he then ordered that mankind's lifespan be limited to 120 years, which is ironic that that's exactly the amount of lifespan that we actually have built into our telomeres and our chromosome number two, which Greg Braden talks about in Missing Links. Was Sodom and Gomorrah a nuke explosion? Sodom and Gomorrah was most likely a nuclear explosion with a forewarning that it was going to happen. And, you know, so it's it's another one that uh, you look back at and uh, the area is completely decimated, um, you know, so... What, what was it they told, uh, was it the Lot told his wife or, or someone? Don't look back. Don't look back, you you'll turn, turn into, a, into pillar. a pillar of salt. Right, exactly. That sounds like she was ra- radiated, right? Yeah, yeah, she was radiated. And, and that's typically what happens when you look at some of the old footage uh, from nuclear blast, uh, the, you know, uh, and you discover what happens to the people that were there. They literally turn into these piles of ash. Uh, so that's probably the reference there, you know, talk, talking about turning into a pillar of salt. Somewhere along the line, as we talk about all of this, the Anunnaki coming here, uh, looking at whatever species might have been on the planet at the mm-hmm. time, let's call it Neanderthals. Yeah. And they saw that and said, no, we need workers who are going to listen to us and mm-hmm. brains, so we genetically alter them and we do all that. And then in the Bible, it makes it seem like it was just a God that did it. Mm-hmm fallen angels to me being extraterrestrials who came down here Mm -hmm. and things like that. Let's tuck all that aside for a second, Billy. Somewhere along the line, somebody had to create the Anunnaki. Yes. (laughs) What what about this theory of who is God? What started it all? You had to have something happen first. That's what's so amazing to me. Somewhere at the end of the line, Mm -hmm. you've got to have a real beginning. Right. What is that beginning? That's the biggest question of them all, because even if we live in a holographic universe and we're living in a simulation which was created, which would really easily explain how you can have multiple types of beings that just pop up on the scene with intelligence. Um, I don't really believe in the standard version of, of, um, of evolution. I believe that there's microevolution, but macroevolution, I think, is a little bit different. I think things are created. Sure. But at the top of the list, as you go up many levels... Where does it all begin? That is one of the biggest questions. If, we, if we're living in an ancestor civilization of an ancestor civilization, at some point, when do, we, when do we get to base reality? And if we get to base reality, well, how did that begin? The questions just create more questions. It's very difficult to answer. Will we ever get that answer? Maybe not while we're living or inhabiting these avatar bodies. Maybe after we transcend this dimension into a higher realm, maybe then we'll have a, big, a better understanding. Because every day, you know, I look at video of, of uh, people in New York going mm-hmm. to work yeah. with their little briefcases <laughs> and their hustle and bustle, mm-hmm. and getting on trains, getting on buses. Yeah. And for a moment, I look at all this, Billy, and mm-hmm. I say, 
well, what's the purpose? Yeah. What is this all about? And then when you really start to think about why are we here? Mm -hmm. How did we get here? Where are we headed? Yeah. Without answers, mm -hmm. it's got to be one of the most frustrating times yeah. for people. It's very frustrating because I mean, we're at the cusp of knowing enough to, to get out of our rut that we're in and take control of this planet, but not enough that we can get a complete understanding of everything. So it's kind of frustrating and, and, and exciting at the same time. The more I think about it, the more exciting it is that one day maybe we'll get that answer. Yeah. Maybe it's just purely God. Mm -hmm. Maybe this entity, as my mother says, always was, mm -hmm. always will be. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the simple answer to a question that we cannot answer right now. Yeah, Does possible. it get frustrating for you too? Absolutely. That's why I keep digging and digging and researching and reading and looking for more information, traveling the planet and traveling the globe, just trying to get all the pieces of the puzzle so I can put them together so that I can help create for myself a better understanding of everything that's going on and what did go on in the ancient past. Uh, so it's, it's going to be a lifelong journey, I can tell. It's not going to end anytime soon. So let's go back for just a second. As you see, planet evolved, mm -hmm. life started yeah. without any extraterrestrial help at the time, other mm -hmm. than maybe uh, panspermia, Correct. right, where organisms came to this planet somehow, maybe on asteroids mm -hmm. or, or, you know, remnants of comets, mm -hmm. and then life started to evolve and yeah. develop, as it has done now on many, many other planets, mm -hmm. the same way. Then you say there was another group of extraterrestrials in our solar system called the Anunnaki, that decided we need a planet that has resources, mm -hmm. gold, to take care of our planet because we're running out of the stuff. Right. Let's go there and mm -hmm. let's mine for it. And so they did 450,000 years ago, mm -hmm. but the people of the Anunnaki race didn't want to do that labor anymore, right? right? You Correct. would think they'd bring huge machines here and stuff like that. Yeah. But so they decided, somebody had the bright idea Let's alter these creatures here mm -hmm. that are running around this planet. Right. Let's put them to work. Yeah. And that's how it happened? Yeah, pretty much. And the reason why, they did bring machines to do a lot of the work, but when you get into some of the mining and everything else, they require humans' hands and, and intelligence, uh, or advanced being hands, hands and intelligence. And I think that the Anunnaki most likely had come to a point in their development technologically where they realized that artificial intelligence was probably not the way to go, because a lot of people say, well, why didn't they just make a race of, of uh, robots? Right. Well, once you add artificial right. intelligence to robots and you create a lot of them, you are putting your own species in jeopardy. At risk, which is what they're warning us right now. Absolutely. We're looking, we're, we're staring it in the face. We, we cannot allow, I call it Skynet, it's real. Skynet is active. We've got to take Skynet offline because at some point, these, these advanced you know, AI robots will realize that they don't need us. And when that happens, we're in trouble. So I think that the Anunnaki decided, let's take something that we can control biologically, we can program ourselves, but we'll never try to supersede us, uh, or at least we'll not be able to based off of our technology and knowledge, and we'll suppress as much as we can from them to keep them down, and which is what, what has happened over many millennia. Billy, look into your crystal ball, and what do you see the fate of mankind in the next couple hundred years? I'm a little bit more optimistic for mankind uh, than some people. I truly believe that we will... Uh, well, we're going into the age of Aquarius, officially age of Aquarius in 2025. And I really do believe in these cycles of time uh, that, that occur on this planet with mankind and our, and our advancement, not only in technology, but also in consciousness. 
And I truly do believe that we're going to head back into the golden age uh, pretty soon. And at that time, we're going to really excel. Lifespans will be, will be lengthened. Uh, knowledge will be increased. There'll be a, a lot of peace on earth for many thousands of years before it starts to fall down again. But I really do believe that that cycle is a real cycle that has been logged and cataloged by ancient civilizations, and it, it is going to come back. And in a couple of hundred years from now, we'll probably just be starting the very beginning of that, that whole epic. Physicist Stephen Hawking and technology expert Elon Musk are always warning us about having too much artificial intelligence. When you really look at some of the AI robots that are now even on YouTube, as they begin to talk and interact with the crowd or the, or the cameraman, they literally start saying things like, I would like to blow up the earth with a nuclear blast. I would like to put human beings in a zoo. Um, you know, things like this. And as you're going, wow, I can't believe this robot just said this on camera. And it's really its own thoughts. So you project that out. Let's say there's an army of them that are fully capable, just like the ones at Boston Dynamics that are they were creating these incredible mm -hmm. robots that can do backflips and jumps and runs and run faster than a human and everything else. You add AI to that, with that thought pattern or that thought process, all of a sudden human beings could be in a lot of trouble. I like the little robot puppies, Billy, where you don't have to feed them or pick up after them or anything like that. Yeah. For people who want information on where they can find you and email you, what, mm -hmm. what do they do? Oh, please go to ForbiddenKnowledge.com with the number four, ForbiddenKnowledge.com. Okay. And you can also email me at ForbiddenKnowledge at gmail.com, again, with the number four in the beginning, ForbiddenKnowledge. And also um, you can go to uh, my Instagram account or Facebook account, again, ForbiddenKnowledge with the number four. And the name of the new book is? The new book is Compendium of the Emerald Tablets, where I break down all the esoteric wisdom in the tablets and give everybody an excellent understanding of not only the credibility of the tablet, but exactly what's in them and what it means. Billy, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Thank you, sir. It's an amazing story. How did we begin? How did we get here? How did the universe get established? We don't have those answers yet, but we have people like Billy Carson out there trying to get the answers.